Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are celebrating Tennessee Williams' 110th birthday, which actually technically falls on March 26th. Um, if you're interested, the an- annual, oh, I'm going to mess it up, Tennessee Williams, is it Literary Festival? Tennessee Williams New Orleans Literary oh, Festival. Festival? Yeah. <laughs> is going on right now, obviously set in New Orleans, which is very much associated with Tennessee Williams. Um, and you can join on the in, on the events via Zoom if you're interested. We ourselves are going to um, be participating in some of the upcoming events that go on through the end of next weekend. Um, so let's plunge in to the fraught question. Of who who is who was who is Tennessee Tennessee Williams <laughs> for those of you who might be abysmally ignorant of our great theatrical and film tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Tennessee Williams is the playwright who saved American theater in the post-war era. Um, American theater was very boring. It it had no kind of pedigree of uh, experimentalism, um, and it you know it was very uh, middle class and middle brow. And Tennessee Williams came in with his fabulous, um, poetic, um, sexy, sultry, tortured, violent plays, mm-hmm. and reinvigorated the American theater. Um, most people tend to think of him as a realist because he portrays, um, you know, the lives of plausible people uh, mo- for the most part. Um, it, many, many of them in working class um, settings uh, dealing with um, the sort of vagaries of desire and uh, the problems of not having enough money. Um, but it's it's much more than that. Um, I, I would argue, and later we'll get into this, I think he's more of a surrealist. And Eileen in her... Um, um, beautiful piece that was on Patreon this week for about Cat on a Hudson Roof, which is fabulous and you should read, um, zeroes in on the feverish quality of that particular film, Cat on a Hudson Roof. But I think that, you know, we can extend that to all of his works. There's mm-hmm. something feverish about the work of Tennessee Williams um, that not only reinvigorated theater, but, but um, made uh, adaptations of his work into film ha- have kind of a special shimmering, um, I don't know, hothouse quality. Mm-hmm. Especially if you look at his great, great era of power, and we'll get into some statistics in a minute about about how overwhelming his influence and impact was and how prolific he was. But in the 50s, early 60s are the period, you know, we certainly agree, and I think a lot of people would, are the great, that's the great era of film adaptations of his work and also his arguably greatest era in theater. Um, and that's where you can, ha- there's enough of that Hollywood artifice operating that you can get this kind of surreal, feverish quality mixed in with elements of, of realism. Um, it's just, that's what they did. <laughs> that was just normal. So Hollywood was really ready to adapt Tennessee Williams' works in a way that, you know, you know, you watch, they continue to be made. There's adaptations on ongoing, both of theatrically and in film, but later ones tend not to have that wonderful combination of qualities. In fact, at the end of last episode, we talked about a delectable new, um, supposedly upcoming adap- film adaptation of one of his works, um, the supposedly unfilmable Camino Real. Um, and it's going to be, the deal is set apparently as of 2020, um, with actor Ethan Hawke, who's intending to direct and produce. And God, is that a mind blower to even imagine that that's going to happen. 
Yeah, it's so of Williams Golden Period, which on Broadway is roughly 1945 to 1961. Mm -hmm. He had 15 plays produced on Broadway, which is a a tremendous number of plays, original work every single time. Camino Real is definitely the most surreal. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of takes place in a never never land and uh, at the edge of. Um, at what he calls terra incognita. And it's this mysterious desert that no one wants to go out into because it's it spells doom. And this mm-hmm. is a play written in 1953, and all of the characters are famous figures from history and literature. So there's like Casanova and Marguerite Gautier from The Lady of the Camellias. Everyone's a little over the hill. Um, the the protagonist is a boxer named Kilroy, which was like a World War II thing. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. soldiers used to draw Kilroy was here on the mm-hmm. walls, kind of graffiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's totally freaking wild. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't even, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make, it makes some, you know, it makes sense in its individual, like, um, poetic strains, but it does mm-hmm. not abide by the laws of, like, space and time. <laughs> So Ethan Hawke can pull this off. You know, we really, we really will have to completely reform our ideas of Ethan Hawke. Though he's done yeah. good work lately with the good Lord Bird. So he's on some sort of mysterious upswing. I mean, hats off to him. Like, yes. good luck <laughs> to you. even trying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so during, you know, so 45 to 61 is Williams's real reign on Broadway. And he mm-hmm. continued to write plays until his death in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, after a certain period, really the American theater just like didn't catch up with him. He was still writing really interesting, crazy, I, I would say like baldly avant-garde work. And it just wasn't, it was too far from realism for Broadway by the end of the 60s um but on film he had 15 adaptations of his work from 1950 to 1970 with all the big stars of the day you know most of these films were nominated for and won academy awards and they kind of filled a need they filled a couple of niches um one was that they definitely broadened the depiction of sexuality on screen um, you know, all kinds of sexualities, um, just how much sex you could show, because all of these plays are about desire in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they they also kind of answered a need for an American art cinema, mm-hmm. you know, a lot. And that's one of the way, because of Williams's artistic reputation, of course, that's the way that major studios could kind of get away with um, putting this on screen, such racy work, because, you know, it had the the reputation of some kind of artistic respectability. Absolutely. Um, kept winning Pulitzer Prizes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Street Party <laughs> Desire and Get on Out to Roof, both. My God. And all the other prizes that were going to. So, yeah. 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 So it, it, you know, and obviously there's like a, a developing taste for darker fare and it's, you know, the films are, are, they have some, a lot, many of them have the flavor of like film noir um, Mm -hmm. and certainly like, you know, European art film of the day that deals Mm -hmm. with kind of like tawdry sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the the existential crises he's begun, you know, all sorts of, you know, uh, hallucinatory states. There's a lot of mental illness. There's a lot of alcoholism. There's a, there's a lot of everything. Excess is the name of the game pretty much. Yes. Yes. So I get, I mean, we'll rattle off a couple titles. So, um, first there is, we don't count this as among the Williams films, uh, because it's not good. Um, but the first adaptation of his work was a Warner Brothers adaptation of The Glass Menagerie. His 
his most kind of tender play, very probably the most baldly autobiographical. It, 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 so it, it came out in 1950, starring Jane Wyman uh, as Laura and uh, Kirk Douglas as the gentleman caller. And they completely changed the ending so that it's upbeat. <laughs> Yeah, it's so maddening and embarrassing when you watch it. You can't believe your eyes because it's the saddest play ever written. It's the most anguishing play. It's very hard to, you know, it's very hard to get through it at all. But there's this crazy upbeat ending with with Tom, who's the alter ego of Tennessee Williams, whose actual whose real name was Thomas Lanier Williams the Third, um, who escapes this this doomed family. He saves himself essentially, but but betrays the family that needs him so in the end it's him reminiscing fondly saying that's how i think of them waiting for the next thing and there's a, <laughs> and, you're, and you they show their smiling faces of the mother and daughter as a new gentleman caller comes up the walk and if you happen to know glass menagerie you just know that's there's never going to be another gentleman caller after that one gentleman caller it's just annihilating so it's an insane thing that they attempt to do there yeah yeah, the, I mean, the whole point of the play is that uh, how delusional um, their hopes, yes. are, or at least the mother's hopes are. The mother's Laura, the, hopes. yeah, like the young daughter knows that she's, you know, an outsider and will probably like never find love. She's punishingly shy, um, and that's the point. And and Tom, the Tennessee Williams character, leaves them um, because they are kind of doomed. And he, you know, it's all about his guilt in kind of saving his life and mm-hmm. kind of leaving them to fend for themselves. And mm-hmm. so. All the poignancy is wrapped up in this guilt, and they just put a happy, optimistic (laughs) ending. (laughs) (laughs) So crazy! It's it's terrible. (laughs) Terrible. So that didn't make much of a splash, but Mm. the next film adaptation of his work, *A Streetcar Named Desire*, did, and it was, you know, a huge success artistically at the Mm. box office. It, oh my God, when you watch this film, the shit Mm. that they could, that they dared to show in 1951, is just like it's it's searing and sexy and i'm still shocked kind of when i see it um so streetcar was a huge success some Mm -hmm. other titles you might recognize the rose tattoo anna magnani's um first american film for which she won an oscar um baby doll the scandalous baby doll Mm -hmm. famous probably most of all for its poster Mm -hmm. which we should describe briefly yes (laughs) shows you know, sexy nymphette starlet Carol Baker sucking her thumb in essentially a little child's crib. And they blew it up to just enormous size and put it in Times Square. And yeah, the poster became notorious um, <laughs> even yeah. more than the film itself. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a great film, but the, um, it was, the, I think it's the only Williams film out and out condemned by the Legion of Decency. Mm-hmm. Purely based on the poster. Um, Cardinal Spellman of New York (laughs) condemned it. Never saw the film, but he saw that billboard. Um, (laughs) And it became a sin to to go see Baby Doll. So um, you probably have also heard of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman, which Eileen wrote about this week. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fugitive Kind, Brando, Anna Magnani. Uh, the fabulous fever dream that is suddenly last summer with okay. Catherine Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Montgomery Clift, which we'll mm-hmm. we'll fangirl about later. <laughs> um, summer and Smoke, Geraldine Page and Lawrence Harvey, not a particularly famous one. Um, mm-hmm. The play is probably better than the film, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone with Vivian Lee, which Eileen hates, it's a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> we'll discuss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sweet Bird of Youth, Paul Newman again. Mm-hmm. Um, period of Adjustment, which neither of I, uh, neither of us have seen a, a, a 
<laughs> Tennessee Williams attempting light comedy. Yeah. Um, yikes. Uh, yikes. Uh, <laughs> Starring Jane Fonda and Tony Franciosa, um, The Divine, um, Insane, Night of the Iguana with Richard Burton and Ava Gardner and Deborah Carr. This property is condemned. Natalie Wood and Robert Redford. The insane boom uh, from 1968 when things started to take a turn for the the caftan-esque with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, directed by Joseph Luzzi. Oh, my God. And Noel Coward. We'll talk about Noel Coward's cameo playing the Witch of Capri. He enters on the shoulders of a little person. Um <laughs> And then Last of the Mobile Hot Shots, which neither of us have seen, mm-hmm. again, directed by Sidney Lumet with uh, Lynn Redgrave and James mm-hmm. Coburn. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that's a rundown. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we, sh- and we should note that, you know, for someone who was so dominant on, on the theater scene, he has a, uh, Tennessee Williams has a shockingly, you know, steep descent um, out of influence and was 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 regarded as sort of, you know, not sort of passe mm-hmm. in the late sixties, early seventies, when he still got, you know, a lot of work left in him. And there's all sorts of cultural reasons for that, that we'll get into, including obviously sexual revolution times are changing very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get into that, which is also, it's had an odd effect, I think on, on such a, such a Titanic career. Yeah. I, yeah. He, he's been like, uh, I think he, at least critically he's like has received a like kind of a a pardoned or like people have recognized since maybe like the Mm. 90s that he was unfairly discarded you know by the end of the 60s um but i don't think that's trickled down to the like average person in the way they think of williams but um yeah he probably still sounds like someone from a distant past (laughs) yeah 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 and it's weird too if you think of who he gets compared to as far as the big the big leading figures of 20th century theater he's often compared to eugene o'neill fair enough Mm -hmm. huge titanic you know career groundbreaking career but arthur miller and that seems odder all the time because arthur miller by now at least as far as i know is is his whole reputation tends to rest on death of a salesman it's not that he didn't do a lot of other things. It's the the reputation of them. The I don't know. It seems to me has has fallen off pretty steeply. Mm-hmm. You don't hear a lot of people talking about I don't know. Uh, all my sons. My sons and, yeah. And, uh, I'm trying to even think of some of the other names. There's several. There's a number of. He did a lot of theater work, but Death of a Salesman is still his claim to fame. Yeah, and uh, well, maybe we'll get into Miller versus Williams later when we talk about yeah. their politics. Politics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, in, uh, undeniably, like, sex mm-hmm. and sexual repression in particular are central to Williams's mm-hmm. meaning as a, mm-hmm. as a writer and the allure of his films. So, um, Eileen, you watched Streetcar last night. The... Oh, my God. <laughs> it loses none of its power. In fact, it had more power because they used to run these films just incessantly when I was growing up. I don't know why, but Tennessee Williams films just ran and ran and ran. So I knew them all. from the t- I was a film-obsessed kid, and I knew all of Tennessee, but I knew them in their chopped-to-pieces form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for, you know, censorship and commercials, it was still commercial TV, and then we just hack hunks out of films. I mean, to this day, I'll, I'll, I'll periodically see a film and be like, oh, that's what that was about. Because... <laughs> The plot could be sometimes, you know, rendered incomprehensible. But in the case of Streetcar Named Desire, it was more, they had clearly cut out some of the more shocking 
um, not whole scenes, certainly, but parts of scenes or certain shots. And the one, the one that's one of the most noteworthy is, of course, the famous Stella scene when <laughs> there's been a big fight between the Marlon um, Brando, the famous Marlon Brando character, Stanley Kowalski. He's been violent, as he often is, with his wife, Stella. Um, and he's screaming. He's out in the street screaming for her to come back to him. She's left him and run upstairs to a neighbor's. And she comes down to him as he's doing this animalistic baying out in the street that became, you know, so famous. An instant parody was just yelling Stella. <laughs> That's how famous this play became and how famous Marlon Brando, this made Marlon Brando's reputation on stage. He's recreating his famous role on screen. And of course, it's the it's the method, at one, of, you know, one of the few method acting performances that define method acting um, for, for generations. But at any rate, she's Stella's coming down the stairs and there are shots that were cut out of the version I'd seen where they are, she is just looking at him with a level of like, it's almost again, animal in that the, the eye contact is so intense and the, and the, and the sheer lustfulness is so intense. Yeah. And it plays as a very long scene. Like it seemed twice as long as the scene as I recalled it. Because it's establishing that this is this overwhelming physical attraction between them that's going to make her overlook all of these horrifying cruelties that happened to her sister Blanche um, throughout the film. It's yeah. another example of a film where they where they change the ending so it will be less shocking. Um, but it's still so shocking. The content is still so harrowing. The absolute destruction of Blanche Dubois is played by um, uh, Vivian Lee, who's recreating. She she played it in England, in London. Um, it's, she's, it's so awful to watch her just be taken apart, <laughs> um, mentally till the end. She's just, she's just completely, um, uh, destroyed. She's a destroyed figure that is led out by her keepers. Um, she's going to be institutionalized. Mm -hmm. Um, so they try to make it, you know, that, that Stella's going to leave Stanley because of this, but you know, they have him baying Stella at the end. And at least they, they tried to keep the sense, you know that she's probably going to go back to him in the play. It's very definite that she goes, she's back with him as yeah. the sisters led away, sacrificed and led away. Um, but it's both are directed by Ilya Kazan, who becomes the, the main collaborator on stage. And you could argue, I guess, the, uh, the, still a super significant collaborator in film. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do as many of, of the plays, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just, it's just, I, I had to like steal myself to watch it because I remembered enough of how upsetting <laughs> Uh, if you identify at all with the person you should, which is Blanche, it's just <laughs> agony to watch. Just agony. She's she's so desperate and raw. And I, I would say for as far as the ending goes, um, so this is 1951 and the PCA, the Production Code Administration, mm -hmm. is still strong. Yes, Their power is still you know, meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, I mean, I think like when we talk about the Production Code, we, we think of it as kind of like this outside force that wants to, you know, like lay down the law and prevent all kinds of things. But mm -hmm. like, I think we also have to remember this is an organization that comes from within the industry and they Absolutely. want the films to be made you know they're really not yes they want the films to conform to certain norms that will um guarantee that you know a family audience can go to any film coming out of hollywood and not be severely offended um which i think they succeeded in like i i know you know eileen both you and i saw this film on tv i i was nine the first time i saw it and i, I was also very like roughly that age and i'm sure there's stuff i had no idea what was going on but you could still feel the disturbances oh my god yes yes yeah. and it, it does that amazing thing like so many films 
films of this era of like conveying the you know the emotional atmosphere of the thing but like not naming it so that you're not traumatized (laughs) and you know you're not I mean I would you know uh, so I had no idea you know that Blanche's husband was gay I kind of get the sense that that Stanley hurt her you know and did something but I didn't know that he raped her exactly Uh you know and um so anyway it walks this line but um, the, the ending is one of the things that the production code demanded be changed mm-hmm. so that Stanley couldn't just get away scot-free with raping Blanche. Right. Um, but I think they do such a good job of, as you say, like leaving it ambiguous because, yeah. you know, Stella goes up those stairs at the end and says, I'm never coming back down. But mm-hmm. we've seen her come back down like a couple times already. You know? <laughs> right. So we, right. we know she's coming right back. Yes, it's handled with great sophistication considering that they were forced to change it yeah it is it's great and and of the many tennessee williams play endings that were changed to fit Mm -hmm. hollywood like i think Mm -hmm. this is one of the most successful but yeah yeah it's certainly not changed as much as cat on a hot tin roof and we'll we'll get to (laughs) yeah to that yeah how much guesswork when you're a kid you're really trying to do with cat on a hot tin roof trying to figure out what's going on here yeah Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but I think the amazing thing about those cuts mm. that you were saying is mm. so again the production code wanted big changes you know like mm. you can't show the rape you got to change the ending and you've got to mm. kind of shade Blanche's confession about her first husband her first husband being gay fair mm. enough um, but so they filmed the movie and then it was actually the Legion of Decency being smarter than the production code administration who said, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not just the content. It's not like the words of this play, uh, you know, uh, alone that are offensive. Mm-hmm. It is this whole thing is just indecent. This whole mm-hmm. thing is suffused with sex. So right. it was, you know, death by 100 cuts. It was they they cut like maybe 40 frames out of the film and everything they cut is either Stella or Blanche looking Mm. desirously. Right. You know, so it's not Mm. sex itself. It's just these women, but this is the thing about, I mean, Tennessee Williams has the greatest female characters of all time. If you ask Mm -hmm. me, they're Mm -hmm. all complex. They're all, uh, they all desire, which is like not always the case, often not the case in Hollywood film that you have the women being the desiring ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what the Catholic Legion of Decency deemed obscene. So that and uh, like you, Eileen, I'd only ever seen mm. that hacked to pieces copy. Right. Yeah. Until the early 2000s. And when mm-hmm. I oh, my God, the shit they've released, like just some of Vivian <laughs> Lee's looks, I'm like, oh, I <laughs> only ever seen her as like an old movie star in you know movies that are under the code and it's like so shocking to see her looking so like I don't know lasciviously at the newspaper boy <laughs> just like boy. young man staring at her and terrified of her and you know you could just see him caught young yeah yes young young man yes <laughs> I want to kiss you softly and sweetly on Woo! your mouth well yeah and yeah Vivian Lee was really equipped to deliver <laughs> deliver Tennessee Williams like born to deliver Tennessee Williams lines and there's that shocking scene where the where she accuses you know accuses Stella quite rightly of staying with Stanley just for the sex Mm -hmm. for sheer animality um it's just all desire and that's all that's they have in common and and, and Stella actually says well haven't you ridden that streetcar basically the streetcar named desire that goes by the house that drops Blanche off yep and that had definitely been caught out I had never seen that scene yep and then yep. they both, the sisters, have to look at each other. And, she, and what did she say? Well, it's what brought me here. Not mm-hmm. just the streetcar, but her whole life has been Stella's. I mean, sorry, Blanche's. Mm-hmm. Had been given over to 
assignations with with strangers, basically, in a hotel, and you know, with strong indications of prostitution. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's where she gets all her finery. That's how she's been living. Um, yeah, and but she, that she also is desperately trying to find, you know, to find love in her life after what she feels is how she destroyed her young husband who was gay. Yes, and and the, yeah. this is the thing. Like, uh, this is so often a conflict in Williams' films and uh, in his plays and his work. Um, there's always like a stronger, more vital char- character who's more of a you know a life force for our times. And in a streetcar named Desire, that's Brando, that's Stanley, yeah. um, who is not unsympathetic. Yes, he's a rapist. He's also a working class guy. Blanche comes in and she's very haughty and she totally disapproves of him and is trying to poison her sister's, his wife's mind against him. Um, and there's so he, but he triumphs at the end because he does have a more like sort of um, just vital life force. And, you know, that's, it's not exactly great. <laughs> You're not like, Oh, the future's going to be rosy. Um, oh, definitely and, not. No. And, <laughs> And, yeah, and although Blanche is B- Blanche is the descendant of plantation owners, um, she's recently lost her plant ancestral home, Belle Reve, in a series of debts accumulated over the generations as their um, their forebears lost the land in their to epic fornications. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so if you some people misunderstand Tennessee Williams, I every time I thumb through a book, it'll say something like reviving the plantation myth. It, that is totally the opposite. He mm-hmm. he may have sympathy for Blanche, but there is nothing about the old South that he makes look like patrician and, you know, wonderful. Like these are all craven debauched aristocrats. And Blanche mm-hmm. is one in a long line of craven debauched aristocrats, which also does not mean she's not deserving of you know, sympathy as a, as a human, as a, you know, a, a woman who's on the run and can't find a place um, a, f- to shelter under and in. in the world. To shelter yes. In. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and but, so, it, yeah, yeah, we should say, I mean, she's, she's maddening. You're watching her do all of this Southern bell, which of course, you know, hark, harks back to Vivian Lee's most famous role as Scarlett O'Hara um, you know, it, it, there's all this kind of, and she's wears this kind of tatty laces, and it's all very floaty, chiffony, and yes. she's constantly flirting, just as a, just constantly, um, and just just nattering on in this kind of, you know, slightly insane uh, Southern Belle thing in a way that is so irritating, but at the same time, your heart just goes out to her, yes, because she can't help it. It's so baked in by now; she can't stop herself even when it's the height of insanity to keep going yes. down this path. And so it's just, that's also part of the agony, as you just can see. She just compulsively can't stop herself from acting in this insanely, <laughs> what, you would say artificial, but it's so much of a part of her yes. that she can't stop herself. I, yeah, I mean, and this is his amazing. Her name is Blanche Dubois, which yeah. you know, and she's got this whole monologue about it means white woods, like an mm-hmm. orchard in spring, you know. And she, there's something about her, and she arrives in a white suit. He describes her as moth-like in the mm-hmm. stage directions. She's like a hysterical version of whiteness, and he's mm-hmm. fully aware of this. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's a moth to the flame, and all this stuff. And it's you know, mm-hmm. it's all of this. Um, conflict about white women and what what the figure of the white woman meant in the mm. South as the you know the heart the untouchable heart to be guarded um, the excuse for racism you know the excuse mm. for um, 
depicting black men in particular as rapacious and animal-like. And of course, he shows her as, you know, she's a desiring being and that's gotten her into all sorts of trouble. She seduced a 17-year-old. She was an English teacher, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's all this complexity. Like, you are not allowed to... Um, you cannot put these characters into boxes that are like good, bad, you know, morally, everyone's problematic in Tennessee Williams place, you know? And I, I just think he's got like a, an almost radical empathy for all kinds of humanity. Cause he, he understands that, you know, everyone cheats, everyone, you know, desires, everyone will do all the little dishonest things that you have to do to maintain some kind of like comfort and protection for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, I, you know, God, that's so refreshing <laughs> to not mm-hmm. have the, the moral hammer come down on one side or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, at the same time, and maybe it's Vivian Lee as much as anything, mm-hmm. she's so battered by life and so uh, you can just see you know you can tell this is this is the last stop for blanche as soon as she gets off <laughs> the, the, the damn the damn streetcar you're like oh god you know you just start feeling the dread of how she's going to be taken apart because you know she is she's there's no way that she's going to survive this even her tatty Tatty finery is all announcing the moth-like fragility of it and yes. so it's very harrowing in that like she 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 is an outmoded creature. She's a she's already a half destroyed creature, and you can't. There is this plea for the people who need kindness, who need who just need a haven, who need who need just a little, <laughs> a yeah. little bit of mercy, and they're not going to get it. And you know they're not going to get it. So God, that's yes. of course the harrowing, the harrowing experience of even anticipating that you're gonna you're gonna have to see her destroyed. And sure, she represents a leg, a, you know, a corrupt pretty much dead legacy mm-hmm. but it's very hard because it's vivian lee and vivian lee herself was falling apart as is well known she had a breakdown over the playing of blanche mm-hmm. um that that it's and she's so she's always very very slender she's very frail her arms are very very slim little arms and mm-hmm. there's brando brando who's as muscled out as he's ever gonna get he's he's really is like an amazing young animal which people forget because of course he winds up 400 pounds and in terrible shape. Right. You have to see him in his youth to see why, what was the big deal about Brando and his acting is so immediate. He's terrifying. Mm-hmm. He's, he really, he, he just blew everybody's socks off. I mean, there's a scene where he's, he's talking very intensely to his wife. And at a certain point he gets distracted by a piece of lint on the back of her nightgown. Even <laughs> while he's trying to persuade her. You know, everything's going to be fine. You just have to get rid of her sister, blah, blah, blah. And he's working on it. He just stops to pluck. That's method acting par excellence. That's mm-hmm. that's the in the moment. You react to the thing in the moment thing mm-hmm. that brings a kind of just extra level of harrowing reality. He's truly like a kind of incredibly exciting, but also terrifying figure. I mean, from the time you see him, he goes, he's got a hair trigger temper. He's always getting into um, enormous brawling fist fights over everything and anything. He's, yes. he's kind of a bullying. One of the things I like best about the character that tends to get forgotten is how he's he really tries to show off the pieces of knowledge that he has. So there's a wonderful <laughs> scene going on and on about the Napoleonic Code <laughs> that he just will not let go in a kind of know-it-all fashion. Um, of a man who's not used to having intellectual supremacy at any point, but he's determined to lord it over the women in the yes. house that he knows more and has more power. 
Yeah. So that that one's Napoleonic code. He says he says it like twenty seven times. Oh my god. Um, it's great. It's a great scene. Each yeah, each character is like so finely their uh, their dialogue is so fine and precise, and this is Tennessee Williams like genius. Like he this the patterns of speech are first of all hilarious, very yeah. identifiable. If you you know if you see any Tennessee Williams play, it does have the same the char- some the characters tend to have the similar rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's so oh my god, it, it, so and everyone gets their moment of comedy i would say except for stella um perhaps um, right i don't think she gets any no no no, no. but it, yeah it's so rich and and hilarious and devastating and um yeah but i i agree with you streetcar of all of them has there's like a real pull the whole time because you do feel like it, you start by falling off a cliff or just beginning to fall off a cliff and you know falling off is inevitable and it propels you the whole way like the whole thing has such momentum yeah williams is a real genius at the lost the last chance so much of his great (laughs) his great works are hinged on the tension you feel because you know it's the last chance the person has so the one gentleman caller who comes it's the only chance they're ever gonna get in class menagerie yeah. For Blanche, this is her sister's place. It's the only place she has left to go. She's literally been asked to leave town. <laughs> I mean, yeah. where she lived before. She has no money. She has nothing. Um, everything is hanging by this terrible thread of, if not this, doom. Mm-hmm. And he, he, that happens. We're going to see Night of the Iguana. Same thing. Last ha- chance for the Reverend <laughs> um, Lawrence T. Shannon. Uh, he can't go any lower than what he's been doing. He's got one last chance at a kind of refuge. And so that builds such incredible tension and it just shows such understanding of how so many people live yes. where you're down to your, at least your last couple of chances. And especially if you have any sense of, of working class life, if you're part of working class life, you're going to encounter that in your life of like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I can try this one more thing. And then I'm tapped. I don't have anything more. And he's it, the exquisite tension of that is, yes. is, I, is really central to, to his affect. I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and sh- speaking of, uh, I think a title that encapsulates that feeling mm. <laughs> might be Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the the right. sort of great exchange in the play is, you know, what what uh, is the victory of a cat on a hot tin roof? And, yeah. you know, Maggie replies, just staying on it, I guess, long as she can. Long <laughs> so, as she can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, who knew that Elizabeth Taylor would also be really great? I mean, at Tennessee Williams performances, I think I think everyone was shocked on the set of Cat on a Hot Tin, especially because her husband Michael Todd died partway through <laughs> um, the shooting. How incredibly good she was! I mean, I don't think anyone expected her, and boy, does she deliver! She <laughs> she's got some just just what the steel um, and and the the hysteria and the sexual frustration and she just plays it all to the hilt and the line deliveries are just marvelous Marvelous. oh my god because she's like the expert bitch of all time like elizabeth taylor is my favorite bitch actress (laughs) (laughs) yes there's a one she's introduced in a scene where one of the no-neck monsters and you hear a lot about that the kids of the her husband's older brother, Gooper, has married a, a woman who's, you know, very fecund. And she's produced a whole <laughs> horde, a passel of really repulsive children. You never see so many repulsive children mm-hmm. in a Hollywood movie in your life. 
And she refers to them as no-neck monsters because their fat little heads sit on their fat little bodies without a bit of connection. And she says, <laughs> and one of them throws, she tries to stop them from digging their, one girl, a little girl from digging her hands in the ice cream and the girl throws it at her legs. And so she's got ice cream and she pick, goes over and she picks up, she claws up a huge hunk of ice cream and just grinds it in the little girl's <laughs> face and and the expression on elizabeth taylor's face is so wonderful for its lack of vanity she just gets the most vicious sadistic pleasure out of doing this it's beautiful, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well eileen you just wrote about it will you tell us briefly what it's about oh it's always so hard to summarize but i'll try um, what's, what's at the heart of this? There's two situations, you know, both incredibly inflammatory situations. One, um, the, the big bullying, um, a kind of terrifying, awful figure of the, the Mississippi patriarch, very, very wealthy man named, they call, they call in the family Big Daddy, <laughs> is returning home from time spent in a clinic where he's being tested for cancer. He's being told he's, he's got a clean bill of health. Um, it's, pretty quickly going to be established that no, he's got, he's got cancer. He's going to die imminently, but the family enters into a conspiracy of silence, not to tell him. And he is fairly viciously reveling in how he's going to live from now. He's really at the age 65 going to start living. And it's in the kind of debauched way um, and cruel to his family way that, you know, we recognize, you know, by the time you get to Canada on Hudson roof um, from w Williams's take on you know, Southern family life, um, especially among the wealthy, among plantation owning types. Um, so that's one situation. The family that knows that, you know, that, that, that he's dying, strongly suspects at first and then knows that he's, that he's dying behind his back. There's a, there's a contestation on the part of the oldest son, Cooper and his wife, May, they're desperately trying to get get the younger and favored son, Brick, played by Paul Newman, cut out of the will for alcoholism and general fecklessness. He's just lost his job as a sportscaster. He's a he's a he's a washed up ex athlete um, who's given over completely to indifference and alcoholism, and nothing seems to rouse him. And Maggie, his wife, played by Elizabeth Taylor, spends the entire play trying to get his sexual interest back and trying to protect his interests in the family. She's determined to hang on to that inheritance because as she says, you're a drunkard and that means we need money <laughs> because you're going to be no, you're going to be useless at making a living in short. So there's these battles being waged um, in kind of in kind of in real time. It's, you know, very, I think it's how long do they spend? Is it a day? I can't even, a day and a yeah, day yeah, and night? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a real yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's one of those real-time plays where everything comes to, a, you know, a kind of horrifying climax um, among these various characters fighting to communicate, fighting for their survival, their sense of their own survival, uh, all of these, all of this competitive um, and sexually frustrated energies um, are all going to wind up to, of course, traumatic scenes of finally truth-telling and i haven't even gotten to mendacity yet mendacity <laughs> drink <laughs> drink well great drinking game yeah. yes we'll get to it later yeah um is going to be part of the final confrontation of big daddy and brick um big daddy trying to jar his favorite son out of this bizarre he thinks lethargy this indifference to life um, cause he'd really rather give, you know, leave, do whatever he can for his son, leave whatever he's got to brick than Gooper. 
Goop, poor Gooper. Gooper is really out of luck. Um, um, but at any rate, um, so throughout this, they, they get into this discussion of what is what is wrong with Brick. Why is he drinking his life away? And it's because Bendacity can't live with the mendacity. Yeah. It's not just people lie. The whole system is built on lies. It's lies everywhere. Lies everywhere you look. And pretty soon, of course, it's going to be revealed well, Brick's got his own lies going on in a big, big way, and that's really what he what he can't stand most of all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's this one's directed by Richard Brooks, who mm-hmm. I didn't know this. The Calle du Cinema boys consider an auteur at, of his. I know, his own. I saw that. Oh, okay. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess his like, you know, he made some war films and film noir that were pretty good in the forties. Mm. To yeah. me, the the film version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, like the virtues are the color. You know, it's like mm. so beautiful. And as uh-huh. Eileen said in her essay, these two humans who you get to watch and Burl Lives. I do I, I love me some oh, big yeah, daddy. He's, he's very charismatic. And Freaking. you know, Judith Anderson is also great as Big Mama, even though she's really See, oddly disagree. Gassed, but- yeah. Oh, you don't I just, like her? Oh, I love no, her. No. I, lo- I love Judith Anderson, and she's like, you know, she reads the lines with intelligence, but nothing mm. about her reads as Southern or, like, working class slob like Big Mama's supposed to be, you know? Mm. Yeah, um, all right. Yeah. It just, I it, she's too highfalutin, maybe. She's too highfalutin. It, <laughs> you can tell she played Medea. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> you can. You can. <laughs> But whatever. But yeah, the, I wound up writing a, a just a paean to the the utter gorgeousness of Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor in their prime, which yeah. and I was watching. It's been you know, Ken and Ruth has been running on TCM for for weeks and weeks on end, and they introduce it telling a, a very a very what significant story about the making of it. Um, supposedly the studio wanted to make the film in black and white, probably inspired by how well Streetcar Named Desire had done just in black and white. And it's beautiful, by the way. We had, didn't mention how Streetcar's gorgeous. Streetcar's gorgeous. Oh. That film is wonderful. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, um, so they proposed, well, no, let's do it in black and white, which was common then for serious dramas, by the way, which mm-hmm. people don't often realize. It was the more f- kind of either epic or frivolous spectacles that often um, wound up being in color, like musicals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but Richard Brooks said, no, no. I mean, no, if we do that, no one will be able to, to see that, you know, Elizabeth Taylor's violet eyes and, and Paul Newman's, <laughs> you know, shockingly as their blue eyes. We ha- we can't, we can't not do that. So it's in color literally to showcase the gorgeousness of the two leads. And and it really does something to some of the themes of the film. It's not that Tennessee Williams neglected their good looks. Um, they definitely are described in terms of physical their physical attractions in the play. Mm-hmm. And in addition, Brick is given credit with having this just this kind of ineffable um, charisma that makes people look at him every time he comes in. Everyone pays attention to Brick. Um, in in that kind of way some people just have. And he's described as having the charm of someone who's given up the struggle. <laughs> yeah. um, so they're both these kind of beautiful, charismatic um, people amid other people who are described often in terms of their physical ugliness. There's mm-hmm. a lot of quite merciless description about Big Mama, for example. There's one really funny line in Tennessee Williams where he, he says, you know, at this moment, Big Mama actually has dignity. She almost stops being fat. And he literally <laughs> writes that in his stage direction. I was just like, holy God. Woo, it's rough. Yes. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So there's a lot of 
description of a kind of aristocracy of the flesh, um, um, which these two have. Mm-hmm. But it's amped to the point in the movie that it simply becomes, as we already mentioned, a kind of fever dream yeah. of gorgeousness. Where you're just staring at the two of them as they, you know, there's all this tension between them. Obviously, he will not sleep with her because she has betrayed him right. in a way that you're going to spend the whole, the whole, the whole film, the whole play finding out what's the big betrayal. Why won't he touch, let her touch him? And she's always, she desperately craves him. Um, he even says, "Go take, jump off the roof, Maggie. Take a lover." And she says, "Do you think I haven't thought of that? <laughs> I can't get over you. I can't see any other man. Why don't you? Why don't you lose your looks? You drink all the time." Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting thing because Paul Newman also drank mm. a lot, loved his beer, but stayed just gorgeous. Just, Ugh. I don't know what, what his exercise regime was or if he was just blessed by the gods, but man, that guy stayed beautiful. Just blessed. Um, yeah. And he's so, this film is, might be peak Newman and yeah. peak Elizabeth Taylor. They're, they're just, it, they're both staggering. And, and so much is shot in terms of just immersing you in a surreal way yeah. in their beauty, in beauty at war. Yeah. Yes, that's so great. Beauty at War. That's <laughs> yeah. it. It and it's I, I mean this film it it does change the play. And the ending mm. of the film makes it much more conventional and Paul mm. Newman decides to sleep with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> he returns yes. to his senses. And you and know, he and Big Daddy make it up in a kind of, you know, way that is not true. And in, in fact in the play, the ver- at least the version that Williams wanted. There was a big contention between him and Elia Kazan. Yeah. over how to handle the play and he even wrote, I think was it a forward or a separate essay yes. condemning my god it was shocking that he would do this because i mean kazan it was his great director and his great friend and he wrote this thing about how kazan had arm twisted him into making changes such as he wanted big daddy to exit at a certain point fairly early two-thirds through the play act and, two and yeah the, he didn't come back and big daddy didn't yeah, come back doesn't in act come three. back in act three you just yeah. hear his his groans Bellows. and cries as as the pain of the cancer sets in um, that's it. That's all. But, you know, cause I was insisting, oh, people are so into the, it's such a great character. We really get, the audience is really going to want to know. They want more big daddy. They want more big daddy talking to brick. Yeah. So he was persuaded to bring him back. It's not what he wanted. So if a lot of, if I went and looked up the play online and it was the, it was the version where he doesn't come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is a big change, it, but I, you know, but even that- cause I, insist they have a kind of heartwarming um, <laughs> I don't think anyway well the difference um, I think the difference in both the Williams and the the Kazan version and the Kazan version is the one that was on Broadway um and right. like won the Pulitzer it um it, in both of those original play endings Maggie makes Brick surrender to her he right. doesn't, you know, he doesn't decide she does. And she, mm-hmm. she said, it's, I mean, it's shocking. She says, she kind of lies at the end. This whole thing is about, you know, getting the land and mm-hmm. um, it's more convinced. Everyone loves Brick and Maggie more, even though they don't do anything conventionally or right. They're just more attractive mm-hmm. and better right. company. It's um, the cruelty <laughs> of attractiveness. It really yeah. is a study of that. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, even though the uh, other brother, the older brother too, you know, first son has done all mm-hmm. the breeding and has the good job. Big Daddy wants to leave the land to alcoholic brick and maggie needs that because you know if brick is going to be drinking she needs some Mm -hmm. income as you said and so she she has to lie she lies and says that she's pregnant 
because she thinks the odds are better of getting the land if she's you know says that she's mm. going to give birth and so um she's determined to make the lie true and at the end of the play she says you know we're going to make my lie true and then i'm going to bring back your alcohol and we're going to sit here we're going to drink yeah, she's <laughs> going to let him drink and she'll drink with him and that is yeah. at the end of williams's the, the the one i read anyway the williams version it, but it's much harsher because she says something i forget what she says and he says wouldn't that be funny if that were true she says i really like i really do love you that's right that's yeah. Right. yeah yeah but so it, it ends on this mockery yeah kind of thing yeah yeah, but in both versions, even the Kazan version still had Maggie saying, like, you weak, mm. beautiful people who yes. surrender so easily or whatever. You know, she's right. the one uh, on top, to be crude. And mm. But the film makes it so that Paul Newman decides, like, come on back to bed, Liz. And you're like, right. okay, everything is right with the world. You know, I feel good right. about that. Right. But, um, <laughs> but it's, a, you know, it's a lot less interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's still, it, like, works. I don't want to, like, diss the film because it totally oh, it's has delightful. its own logic. <laughs> yeah. It does. It does. Yes. Yeah, it's wonderful. But this, mm-hmm. there's this thing that Richard Brooks does as a director, and he had a great deal of influence in d- writing the screenplay for both Cat mm-hmm. on a Hot Tin Roof and Sweet Bird of Youth, another Tennessee Williams play that he adapted in mm-hmm. 1961, I think, also starring Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. He puts these scenes in that are like so ponderous, and then it becomes like an Arthur Miller play. Like mm-hmm. in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Richard Brooks added the damn basement scene, which is the one I always want to fast forward through where like mm-hmm, big right. daddy's in the basement with brick and having a heart to heart and it turns out if only big daddy gave brick more love in his childhood everything would have been fine yeah. like only there'd been love love in this household you never gave them love you like, gave them things ew yeah. ew <laughs> i know the, i know <laughs> the best thing about the play is like there's no lack of love but everyone's fucked up anyways like like the yeah. real world you know um, no, in fact, there's descriptions, scene descriptions of Big Daddy always kind of being nervous and anxious around Brick because he loves Brick. Loves him so <laughs> anybody, much. Yeah, and he, but he can't talk to him and he can't get Brick to respond to him. Yeah. 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 And the same thing happens in Sweet Bird of Youth. There's some weird, like, extended lighthouse scene of it's like oh, yeah. a flashback, right. right? It's awful with Paul Newman and, like, the love interest who never yeah. really get to have a scene together in the play. Um, it, and it's, like, you know, all about their hopes and dreams. And again, like, Richard Brooks is always psychologizing the characters in a dumb way. It's not, I mean, Tennessee Williams characters are tremendously complex and they each have their own complex psychology. But like when I say psychologize, I mean like the Hollywood way of psychologizing where like there's like always one secret that's the key to uh, explaining the entire person, you know? Psych 101 all the way. Ew, ew. (laughs) Which is what my students always want to do to people, to characters. And it's like, that's not how humanity is. And, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so Richard Brooks has a way of making these uh, of cat and sweet bird he makes them both very middle brow and mm-hmm. they succeed even on those terms but i you know cat i believe is the most successful tennessee williams adaptation and i think it's like in part for this reason mm-hmm. you know because it does make it a lot more a lot more middle class mm-hmm. right but. right and it's weird sweet bird of youth is so it see the pace seems to have died altogether. Oh, it's <laughs> it seems so oh. slow. Oh my god! I, I and, hate and that film. <laughs> it's really not not working. Even though there's there's all this strenuous stuff happening, but nothing's really coming across. And talk about an ending that makes no sense. No, <laughs> in the end, I'll just tell you, none of you are going to watch Sweet Bird of Youth. It's rarely <laughs> even seen that that much. But um, yeah, he's supposed to be castrated by a vengeful town who've been sort of set upon him. By by the guy who's been controlling the town whose daughter 
um, he's in love with. And instead, in the end, they have him, you know, he's they cut his face, I think. They beat him up yep. they, a little bit, and they cut his face. But you can barely see any even his face. They, they just say, well, now you'll never be able to attract anyone again or something. You know, your beauty's gone. You'll certainly never be able to go to Hollywood, which is his completely insane plan. Or how yeah. he and the and the young woman he loves are going to escape and be successful. Somehow they're going to make it in Hollywood, and he's going to use this um, fading Hollywood star played by Geraldine Page is going to be their ticket um, to fame and fortune. It makes no sense, but and again, it's that last chance that's doomed, and you can see it, and you're just having to watch it play out in agony. Yeah, um, but yeah, so the castration scene, which the, presumably they still can't show in the early '60s or yeah. even indicate becomes a lightly beat up and cut his face scene. <laughs> yeah. And, and then he walks away and makes a joke to the young woman as they wander off together. And you're just like, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. The movie's on a million levels and we don't even have to like spend our time with it, but it, yeah, it's, I, I blame Richard Brooks. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it's, it's a really half-assed dumb adaptation altogether. Yeah. And- yeah. Yeah. And okay, final thought on Cat. Like, I don't know about mm. you, Eileen, but I don't, when I see the cinematography, I, mm. I was shocked that they think Richard Brooks is an auteur because I'm like, mm. this is like the least inventive photography of all time. Mm. Like, there's a moment or two where there's like a deep focus shot where Brick and Maggie are on either side of a, of a door and maybe Big Mama and Big Daddy are arguing in the background. Right. And right. that's like, there are like two of those. And I'm like, oh, there's a art. couple mirror. A couple mirror shots are nice, but you're right. Yeah. Even those are kind of obvious, right. <laughs> obvious shots to get them together in the same frame because they won't, he won't stay in the same space with her. He's constantly moving the second, you know, she comes exactly. near him. Exactly. But yeah, it's very pedestrian. It's just the gorgeousness of the color helps you and the gorgeousness of the stars helps you. But otherwise it's very, very pedestrian. I know. I'm like, this is boring. I mean, like photography, cinematography wise, but it's yeah. not boring film at all at all right yeah right right right. that's yeah. true so it is uh that was a mystery i'll have to read up on that more and see what the argument was for why he was an auteur because i'm baffled by that i idea. don't know yeah. <laughs> he's very middling he's a very middling talent yeah those french boys a, were yeah. weird i don't understand they were. their taste all the time <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they were. whatever whatever but, yes. okay shall we move on to suddenly last summer and how everyone should see it <laughs> yeah everyone should see it and get set you know hang on to your <laughs> to yourself a bit because you're not going to I, I even hesitate to explain the plot because it's so wild yeah we but don't even we have to say maybe a little um it's about a lobotomy <laughs> or a threatened lobotomy among other yeah. things uh, and, it's, and it's what year is it early 60s 58 right? no no it's 50, oh, sorry 59 oh, 59 59 so it's yeah. only a year after cat on hot tin roof but it yep. seems to have gotten much it seems to be, they seem to be in a year. Like the pussy footing around homosexuality in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is very striking. Uh huh. You know, Brick, Brick's friend Skipper that he obsesses on, who's, who's deceased, uh, you know, his, his, his kind of, his friend in all things athletic, you know, his great friendship. Um, and you can't figure out, and, and Maggie had a, a, this, this one night stand with Skipper and he can't forgive her for that. But there's a lot more going on to it, and they have to have a huge that that basement scene is there, so you can come up with this hugely convoluted story for why why he's so hung up on Skipper. Well, you know the the, the clear implication, I guess, if you can do Fluent Williams, is you're like, oh, Skipper was clearly in love with him, and he might he's so cl- he can't admit that he 
and he mm-hmm. felt anything like that for Skipper. But you know, that's it's definitely a big part of the of the the mendacity and then the reveals of the play. Yeah. But by the time you get to 1959, it seems like it just seems so much more insane what you're able to get away with, which is weird because the code is still in a full in operation. 59 is a weird year. Things are happening in 59. Wow. Yeah. It's a change. Yeah. It's like the fulcrum, I feel like, between yes. the time of like pre sexual revolution to, you know, full on sexual full revolution. On. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden, and I'm not sure why, that would be interesting to research 59 and what's going on because yeah. something seems to have loosened up because the material is just crazy they shouldn't have been able to adapt it at all under the code it should have just been like no way it totally by implication because it's such shocking material i mean it, we have to say a little bit it's about what it's about um, uh a, what how do we put this a hmm. dead off-screen gay protagonist right <laughs> and who died violently very violently yes. in a way maybe we won't say how Yes. Okay. Very violently. Yeah. And, and you and it takes the again the entire film to find out how he died, but you mm-hmm. know there's something up. And his mother, who's obsessed with him, Catherine Hepburn, played Catherine by Hepburn an, plays insanely yes. brilliant Catherine Hepburn, looking like so good a crazy bird. She's <laughs> yes. so crazy. <laughs> yes. And birds of prey are a big theme in the film. And yeah, so she's wearing these weird frond hats and stuff too that look like bird like feathers and stuff. <laughs> And yeah, she's great. She hated the part. She got partway through the, the, the filming. She hated the filming. She hated the part. She famously spat at the producer. Um, what's his <laughs> name? Saul Siegel. At the end, yeah. she's like, are you sure I have nothing else to do on this film? Are you sure? Are you positive? Yes, yes, yes. And she spat <laughs> on the floor. Yeah, she and she's brilliant. And she, she's wonderful. But brilliant. she hated playing the part. And she, mm-hmm. and she only realized it partway through. And anyway, she's playing the mother of Sebastian. And it's Sebastian and Violet, Violet and Sebastian. So they're more, it's uneasy making because they're more like a couple mm-hmm. than they are like a mother and son. There's something very twisted about the relationship, but the house is crazy. There's this whole jungle-like garden with Venus fly traps <laughs> and everything else. It's just announcing itself as crazy at every level. And she's describing all this to a doctor um, um, who, who practices at this, at this, you know, psychiatric clinic where he's doing experimental work with lobotomies. Um, lobotomies loom large in the in the Williams um, um, oeuvre because of what happened to his sister Rose, who was the inspiration for the Laura character in Glass Menagerie, and and you know partially for probably for Blanche and other characters. But at any rate, uh, she was um, diagnosed schizophrenic in her youth and was lobotomized at the you know with the full cooperation of her mother Edwina. And Williams always felt hideously guilty that he didn't, he objected, but he didn't stop it um, and took exquisite care of her for the rest of her life and devoted chunks of his fortune to make sure she would be, she lived, outlived him by many years to make sure she was always very well taken care of. So it's the center of this is, is this young woman and she's a relation. What is she? A she's she, uh, cousin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She's Sebastian's cousin. Violet. Sebastian's cousin. Yeah. Suddenly, last summer, <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of Violet, the mother, going on this traveling, they're always traveling in the summer, and he always writes a poem every summer. Instead of her going, suddenly she doesn't go. <laughs> and this cousin, um, played by Elizabeth Taylor, is brought on to go instead. And she's the one who witnesses Sebastian's death, and she's so traumatized she cannot remember. And there's going to have to be all this work to try to get it out of her. But Violet doesn't want anyone to know what she's claiming. She's claiming mm-hmm. things that are so horrifying that Violet is determined to shut her up 
and mm-hmm. she wants a lobotomy performed on her and she's holding money. She's very wealthy. She's going to give the hospital the money if they do it. And she's going to give um, the young woman's name is Catherine. She's going to give Catherine's parents a big chunk of money as well if they agree to it. Mm-hmm. So this lobotomy is you know, central to the to the whole cut this story out of her brain. And apparently <laughs> that was Edwina's reaction to Tennessee Williams' sister Rose, mm-hmm. who part of her part of her mental illness was she would she was just she would say very explicitly sexual things, um, which you know, Mother Edwina could not could not bear and wanted them <laughs> cut out of her brain essentially. Good God. Okay, I'm only chuckling just because you have to understand the tone of this film. <laughs> it's, I know it sounds like oh. a horror show, but it's so, <gasps> it, you know, it's the most, I mean, it is camp, but it's before it goes, it, there's like a tension, like it's still making oh sense, God. a lot of poetic mm. sense. And there are these fabulous, weird, it, like camp, from below camera angles. Mm. It's directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, mm. And Liz is... I won't say she's good, but she's a delight. Like you're always grateful for when she's on mm-hmm. screen and there's like some amazing, she's so, Oh God, she's so beautiful. I mean, she is so yes. beautiful in this film and she's mm-hmm. a little more like filled out than she was in cat. Mm-hmm. But there's something hilarious about her always being threatened with like being lobotomized, but she seems like the hardiest, healthiest gal. <laughs> yes. And you're just like, I don't think anyone can lobotomize Elizabeth Taylor or do anything else to her against her will, you know, <laughs> like, but they do keep plunging her into scenes where it has to be able to be read two ways you know so they do do that where it's like she's constantly being threatened with rape and assault like constantly but then you're like going well (laughs) yeah (laughs) she's gonna be okay but you yes exactly but there's many many accounts and scenes of that so that, that 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 come into the heading of you know is she making this up after a while or is she deliberately putting herself um, into dangerous situations to have these things happen to her. So yeah, yeah, they do work really hard to to try to establish that. But you're right; she looks very <laughs> totally she looks sane. very healthy and sane. Yeah. And- Party yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's and the whole thing is full of these like really outlandish actors and the poetry right. of the lines and the poetry of even the names. You know, Sebastian is named after Saint Sebastian, who's kind mm-hmm. of the patron saint of gays. Um, you know, Oscar Wilde took the name Sebastian Melmoth when he went into mm-hmm. exile. You know, mm-hmm. everything's got like just like heaps Coding of poetic resonance. You know, like <laughs> wow. Yes. And, and there's a monologue about the. The, 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 the flight of the sea turtles away from the carnivorous birds attacking them that you will never forget that Kathleen Hepburn has to deliver in this just kind of obsessive, insane outpouring that you will never forget once you've seen it. I saw that when I was a kid and I've never forgotten the mad flight of the sea turtles. Never, never will. <laughs> That's supposed to be the face showing you the face of God. The sea yep. A devouring God. <laughs> a devouring God, yes. Oh, and we, we should mention, just to, just to convey to you how many mad the affect of the film is montgomery clift who's he's the one who's the quaking ruin by this point Mm. you know he's had the car accident and elizabeth taylor was the one who saved his life he had a horrifying car accident destroyed his face she was the one who climbed she adored him Mm -hmm. climbed into the car he was choking on his own front teeth Mm -hmm. come dislodgement gone down his throat she got into the car reached in yanked them out Held onto his head, which was swelling up to the size of a pumpkin. She was just covered in gore. Mm-hmm. Um, so she sa- not only saves him, saves his life, mm-hmm. but keeps getting him jobs when he's unemployable because he yeah. becomes a hopeless drug addict. He was a very beautiful, beautiful. He was like he was like the male equivalent equivalent of Elizabeth Taylor. And if you want to see that, you watch A Place in the Sun, where you can 
to study how twin-like they are in their beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so he's he's had his face destroyed, and he's a drug addict, and and he drinks, and he's just he's just a quaking mess, and he looks like one. But he's yeah. supposed to be playing the doctor, <laughs> who's all stable and reassuring, and who's the one who can therefore pull Catherine through her her you know the horrifying mental state she's in. And you're like, you hired Montgomery, but I'm, she I think if I recall, right, she put it on the line. She's like, he's it's if you you don't have me, if you don't have him, yes, you gotta have him, yes. So they had to hire him. But yeah. it's just, you're just like cross-eyed watching him. Even if you don't know who Montgomery Cliff is, you're like, what's wrong with that guy? He's <laughs> so frail and his face is so wrecked. He looks like he's lost inside his big boxy 50s suit. He's just like, oh. So true. Yeah. So there's so much that's freaky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, and Mercedes McCambridge. Oh, God. Who specializes in kind of tough, butch, yep. you know, really formidable roles is playing a twittering... <laughs> southern kind of aw aw truly awful woman but it's all this soft <laughs> flighty fluttery um vocal productions that she does that is really creepy because boy is that cast against type yeah yeah, yeah. it's wackadoodle and like we cannot recommend it <laughs> highly enough it's oh, so good yeah. so entertaining definitely see it definitely <laughs> and and speaking of fever dreams uh another favorite is the fabulous 1964 the night of the iguana, yeah, night of the iguana. Whew, starring richard burton as a <laughs> boozed up uh like what, what's the word for when you are... Well, you know, he claims he's not been defrocked as a priest. Defrocked. But, but he has, I think he... Minister. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's an Episcopalian yeah. minister and he yes. keeps... Right. He's getting tempted by young women, including Sue Lyon, who played Lolita, a person mm -hmm. who I will forever confuse with Carol Baker, the star of <laughs> Baby Doll. They're like the same yeah. person to me. Um, and he yeah. ends up, you know, he keeps saying, speaking of Tennessee Williams surrealism, his refrain throughout this film is fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. You know? Fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, he kind of means it as, you know, like uh, a sarcastic, like, great, everything's going just great as he keeps failing and flailing. And he's um, but it, I, really, I think I mean, it's about the fact that he's kind of entering this twilight zone so he's you know he's a defrocked minister the only job he has left is to take all these old biddies from the states on this tour of mexico and, and they're like baptists or something it's a religious yes, group yes. on a tour it's so nightmarish and it's shot you know john houston fully cooperates in that description i think the fantastic and the realistic are being talked about and um, between uh, the the Richard Burton uh, uh, Shannon character and um, the Hannah Jelks character played by Deborah Carr, and they talk about how you have to live in two in two what modes you have to live in the fantastic and the realistic, mm -hmm. and of course, and this is where he's having trouble <laughs> yep. reconciling these two things. But it's shot very much that way. So there are all these grotesque facial distorting close-ups of this of this group of women as they sing of all things over and over. Happy days are here again. <laughs> It's just haunting and awful. And he's just cringing in his seat, just dying for a drink, for something to get away. And boy, does it, it's very effective. Richard Burton is very good as someone who's falling apart. He's he, brilliant. He, he plays it exquisitely. He knows all about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And his, yeah. you know, his beautiful ravaged face and his piercing oh. blue eyes. I mean, it's in black and white, but, you know, his eyes are light and his mm -hmm. his face is like pockmarked and careworn. Mm. And he's like so handsome, it, you know, mm. because of uh, because of his raggedness. And he steers these ladies to a, a <laughs> destination um, on this. Yeah. But yeah. In a, in a, a like unknown 
uh, corner of, of Mexico on the beach where his old friend Fred, uh, who's married to this woman named Maxine, used to have a, a kind of broken down hotel. Fred is dead, but Maxine is still there, played by the world's sexiest animal, uh, Ava Gardner. <laughs> who yeah. is like a good decade older than Burton in this film and like the hottest thing on two legs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and as a matter of fact, some trivia, this, this film was made in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and they put mm-hmm. Puerto Vallarta on the map because mm-hmm. it was filmed in 1964 mm-hmm. uh, with Burton, who just came mm-hmm. off the set of Cleopatra and his mm-hmm. very, very famous or earth-shakingly <laughs> famous affair with Elizabeth Taylor, the right, likes right. of which we do not have today, you know, like... Yeah. Just to remind everyone, you know, these were movie stars. There, the Pope condemned Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> right, and <laughs> for her affair with Richard Burton. And there was a movement on the floor of Congress not to let her back into the country after filming yeah. Cleopatra. <laughs> so, like, yeah. we don't even have controversy like this. But they were the world's <laughs> most famous people. And uh-huh. not only did Burton go down there to film, but Liz followed him because Elizabeth Taylor is no fool. And she loved Ava Gardner. They were friends from their MGM days. And even though Ava Gardner was like a decade older than she was, she was not mm. going to leave her man alone on an <laughs> island with Ava Gardner. <laughs> so, very, smart so, <laughs> very smart woman. Very smart woman. So the Burtons, the Burtons went and the entire international press followed. And then Puerto Vallarta became a thing because of the filming of this movie. Yeah. So, and it yeah. is gorgeous. It, and it's a little, and again, you have a kind of distortion of, of, of the meaning of the play, which I didn't even realize we were reading. Both Dolores, and I, Dolores recommended to me reading John Lahr's, um, uh biography of Tennessee Williams. There are several, I forget what his is called now, something about the flesh. Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh. That's it. Um, yes. So I was reading that and it was talking about how in the play... It's it's all about this spiritual battle on on behalf of Shannon. He's 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 at the end of his. It's again. It's another last chance film. He's totally he's falling apart. He's having a breakdown. And but you know he's he's been striving to try to get himself back into the kind of Episcopalian priesthood he, to recover his his soul that he, he feels is embattled. At the end, for Tennessee Williams, at least according to Lar, he loses this battle, and you you see him head off down the hill to the beach with with Maxine. He's going to stay. Um, and and the, the description is notice it's going down. He's going downhill. He's 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 just he's gonna he's gonna wind up drinking and fornicating and he's lost his spiritual battle. But when you're watching the movie, all you're thinking is it's Ava Gardner in this fabulous hotel on the beach. This yeah. looks great. Thank God he's saved. <laughs> so I never knew that was even implied. Same. Yeah. It seems like yeah. the best way to end your life. Totally. <laughs> a mercy. Just like for once you watch a Tennessee Williams things and there's mercy at the end. And he gets exactly what he needs. You're yeah. Like, Thank Christ. <laughs> and it makes sense. It doesn't feel tacked on, you know? No, it feels totally like that's what was meant. So yeah, it was a shocker that apparently Maxine is conceived differently in the play <laughs> so eileen ava gardner thing do you want to talk about your favorite scene in all of cinema uh-oh no you're, or one no, of them what well, is it, my favorite scene it's your favorite scene in this film that much uh-huh. i know uh-huh come on you know the hint is I'm ava blanking. gardner and maracas oh how can i forget <laughs> ava gardner yeah, even while married to her husband Fred, who's now deceased, he was twenty years or something older than her, and he got he loses interest in sex. But as as she as she points out to the brother Prim Hannah Jellick, she says, "Well, but I still got my biological urges." <laughs> so she has two magnificent, very young Mexican beach boys. I think that's even how, might be how they're described. Yes, um, and they and they dance sexual attendance on her through the entire play. 
Um, so they're always like, and they always have these maracas that they're shaking to try to get her going. And they do this little wonderful hopping dance steps around her, these dances constantly. And she's like, ah, I'm busy, boys. I'm busy. And then finally she gets really pissed off at Shannon, who's the one she actually, you know, quite cares about and wants to stay. And she goes running off down to the beach and, and it's a night scene in the surf and it's Ava Gardner dancing with both the Beast Boys pressed against her in a sandwich fashion and leaning back to kiss one and then leaning forward to kiss another and dancing again and she's just in a rage and and it's a, like a sexual fury. It is so good. <laughs> you just gotta watch it to see, yeah. and see it to believe it. It's just gorgeous. Gorgeous. It's, it's so free and Ava was so nervous about doing the film. She did not consider herself much of an actress and she thought Tennessee Williams was, you know, uh, above her and John Houston, who is her good buddy, like forced her. He was like, you must play this. You know, you're going to be excellent. And so I think finally she was convinced, but she, mm-hmm. and she is brilliant. You cannot in a, oh my <laughs> yeah. God, in a, you know, yeah. in a perfectly cast film full of people that you just want to stare at forever. Like she, she is the most magnetic presence, and it's yeah. and that is that is quite a feat in yeah. this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. You could argue she runs off with the picture even while everyone else is being great too. It's really remarkable because yeah. and, and it's it's so weird that Maxine again in the play doesn't represent what she seems to represent in the film because because when I used to watch it, I always thought, oh, this is such a brilliant critique of American culture, which is represented by you know, the women on the bus mm-hmm. and the Sue Lyons character, who's this kind of obnoxious, <laughs> you know, clawing, needy, nymphette figure who's just won't let him alone. And then, and then the, as soon as he rejects, she, she gets rejected, goes into a rage and then flips her affections over to this lumpish um, kind of muscle bound bus driver who's young named Hank. Yeah. And, and it's just like, it's just a devastating portrait of, of certain qualities of the, of American culture that, you know, Lawrence T. Shannon is well out of. So it's, it makes, it makes going to Mexico look like, Oh my God, thank God there's that escape route. (laughs) You could go to someplace else that has some sort of sanity in it. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, well, yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, that I bet you that's in the, I don't know what John Lahr said. I haven't gotten to that point in the biography, but oh, okay. <laughs> maybe John Lahr doesn't know, you know, who the hell knows what it's supposed well, to be. Well, but, you know, when they describe Betty Davis played it on stage and apparently alienated everyone in the entire <laughs> yeah. cast of the play. But at any rate, she wore like a red fright wig. <laughs> and she was supposed to be much less good looking, like to a point that, that Shannon says, you know, whoever told you, you you could wear those kind of tight, I forget what she's wearing, capri pants or something. Uh-huh. It wasn't a true friend of yours. Um, you know, there's all this kind of sense that she's way more, I don't know, has a way harsher edge on her, that it isn't that great a thing um, mm-hmm. to wind up with Maxine, which you just don't, you do not have at all film and i love the film so much that i never want to see the play if that's if that's accurate i never want to see the play it'll ruin my whole image i Um, i think i've only read the play but i think it's still Mm. great and you can still have the ava gardner-esque maxine Uh, i I blame betty davis for this (laughs) yeah i mean much respect to betty davis but girl this Uh is not your role (laughs) yeah it does seem like very odd casting yeah i remember reading i haven't again i haven't gotten to that point in the bio yet but i remember reading that tennessee williams did not want betty davis for maxine but she campaigned very hard for the role and they needed a star She was such a big star and yeah she she was in control of the box office and she was constantly arm twisting everyone saying well i'll just leave and then that would mean half the box office would go with her so so she kept like forcing her interpretations on things yeah it sounds like it was it was quite ugly yeah um, yeah how it got handled yeah yeah that that sounds about right yeah 
But I mean, maybe so, you know, your idea about the politics of iguana, maybe it's a good way to segue and maybe wrap up. Yes. Definitely. Um, Let's talk the politics because, you know, Dolores, I've been talking about how if you're going to talk about political, you know, playwrights, you're probably going to of the of the 20th, mid 20th century. You're going to be talking, mm -hmm. you know, Clifford Odets, Arthur Miller. You know, mm -hmm. there's other people who get talked about in those terms. And Tennessee Williams often just generally doesn't in, is my impression. And yeah. that seems odd to us anyway. It's, carry on. Well, oh, it's insanely odd. Um, I, I would say my like the overall besides the fact that I think people might be like willfully blind because there are mm -hmm. very, um, there are very powerful, boldly political tracks in like the glass menagerie, mm -hmm. both in the stage, the opening kind of um, yeah. stage directions and Tom's speeches, you know, Tom's monologues are some of the, the Tennessee Williams biographical mm -hmm. figure in the glass menagerie are some of the most well-known monologues in all of theater. And he says things like in, in Spain, there was revolution. Here, there was only, you know, like kind of sputtering um, little fires everywhere for war for lack of a better, you know, in Chicago, in Detroit, there might have been some unrest. But basically, he talks about how the American middle class will just swallow everything. And right. he says, you know, until the 20s, when I believe the word is um, like the American middle class had its fingers pressed down on the fiery Braille alphabet um, <laughs> that that like, you know, was its time. You know, finally, at some point, it had to reckon with the fact that people were so fucking passive mm -hmm. and so you'd have to ignore all that if you wanted to say that Tennessee Williams was not political which he is and he's written he wrote a play not about nightingales which was about a famous um prison break uh pri mm -hmm. I'm sorry prison strike hunger strike mm -hmm. and he came up very much in the 30s he wasn't part of the group theater but he worked with other groups like the mummers in St. Louis who were mm -hmm. bald he they were communists and so was he um and besides the fact that he identified as a communist, he was not the kind of person who would go to a party meeting at all. Um, and well, it, you'll get in in the Lar bio, you're going to get to a part where, for a brief time, he really tries to be to be active politically. He, hmm. he winds up going to going to rallies. Um, it doesn't last very long because he feels like he's he's getting kind of coerced into it by uh, someone who he's involved with, who's much younger than him, uh -huh. um, you know, in, 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 in very involved in late sixties politics. And it quickly becomes clear. He, they just want him there because his name is a name you can attach that will draw more attention. Cause even though his, his what, his prestige is starting to, to fall. He's so famous. You, mm -hmm. he, you can't argue with how famous he is that it's an asset just to have him be at some of these rallies, meetings, marches, et cetera. So he winds up quitting very quickly. So yeah. he even has a kind of attempt for a, for a brief time to be politically active in that way. And then it falls away. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. And I would also say that to take the tack that Tennessee Williams's work is not political is mm -hmm. to deny what we've kind of learned in the last mm -hmm. 60 years, which is that the personal is political mm -hmm. and all of his characters are forced into their conflicts because of the material conditions of society. And I think that what's interesting about Tennessee Williams is that none of these characters' conflicts can be solved through a healing of their personal psychology because their personal psychological battles come out of things like, um, you know, patrilineal property um, mm. lines, uh, like in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, and, 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 you know, being poor and versus having money. I mean, all of these things are 
if Blanche, you know, Blanche is in the situation she's in because she ran out of funds. Mm-hmm. Um, this and this is always the this is always the fate of his characters. But mm-hmm. it like if we want to get a little more heady, the structure of his plays is really revolutionary. And I would mm-hmm. say the thing structurally that's most interesting is that he has almost always more than one protagonist. Mm-hmm. So if your typical like Arthur Miller liberal tragedy is about mm-hmm. like an individual versus society who, mm-hmm. you know, it, the plot is linear and that person grows and overcomes or doesn't or is squashed mm-hmm. by, you know, mm-hmm. society, there's no one's alone in a Tennessee Williams play. No, it's no one. It's everyone versus it's about the weather, the changing weather between people. And they're mm-hmm. all caught by forces larger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's this thing, this like complex collectivity of the situations that's almost never one person versus the world that mm-hmm. you could call, it, you know, and some people have, for lack of a better word, and admitted that they just didn't have the language. You could mm-hmm. call this proto-socialist in mm-hmm. its in its structure, because the liberal version, uh, you know, the melodramatic way of seeing things is that, you know, extraordinary individuals can do extraordinary things. That is never his take. Never, never, never. And I think, um, you know, I don't know what people want from him exactly, what where he's lacking maybe, but he, he he's made plenty of political statements in his life about, um, you know, actual political things but I think what's way more interesting is the collective vision he has and no one you know uh everyone influences everyone else in his place you know it's always a dynamic um exchange and I think that that's actually really unique in American drama and Mm -hmm. also on American screens but that is my that is my TED talk. No, no, that's great because I think it's that helps to then point to what what people get distracted by, mm-hmm. so that when they think of Tennessee Williams, and I'm just throwing this out there, I'm not an expert at all. Um, it seems like he gets very much associated with a certain type of theater where it is that personal psychology becomes the fascination. It's partly the richness of his characters that you remember, mm-hmm. you know that that affect of it. So I think people tend to reduce down. Mm-hmm. So they think of what a streetcar named desire. And it's like, it's Stanley versus Blanche. Yep. And Blanche loses and that's terrible. So Stanley's the villain and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That that's, I think that's how it gets read for a lot of people. Plus I would say that plus it's the emphasis on closeted sexuality mm-hmm. um, that he kind of gets remembered for. And that also helps to make him seem outmoded in the late sixties already. He's, he's only a few years before been the hottest thing, the hottest ticket on Broadway. Yes. But as the sexual revolution comes in very rapidly, young gay people are like, oh my God, he's ancient. This is ancient. This is, this is so passe. Yeah. This whole take. Um, that I think that's something that people, even if they don't literally remember, they have a vague impression of that he's yes. some early mode of gay sexuality. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Certainly, Tennessee Williams depends on the closet for a great deal of the meaning of his work. But mm-hmm. if you follow him through the, the rest of his career, I just read a book of screenplays that he wrote, actually. Not, mm-hmm. not plays, but screenplays. And one is called One Arm. And it's written in the 70s. And it's mm-hmm. about a one-armed hustler. Now, the hustler doesn't think of himself as gay, but all of his clients are men. Mm-hmm. And they desire him because he's an amputee. 
and um, he commits a murder one night. Um, like a kind of, you, you sympathize with him on why he commits mm-hmm. this murder. He's being exploited and forced to star in a porno with some creepy guy on a yacht that he doesn't want to. And he ends mm-hmm. up killing the person kind of by mistake, but he's on the run. And right. at the end of the film, he's in jail and he's on death row. And um, he's getting all these postcards from his Johns who are, and he, it's not like he was into them really, you know, he's doing his job. He was good at his mm-hmm. job. Um, but they're like so dear to him that he's remembered fondly by all the strangers who he had mm-hmm. sex with. Um, I mean, come on, this wow. isn't political. Like, <laughs> like, are, like, it's so stunning in its, in its complexity. Like ten, it's true. Mm-hmm. Tennessee Williams does not have, if you're looking for, this is a story about queer identity. He never fucking has that. And it's so refreshing. You know, no one comes out. My students are so, they were kind of frustrated that Brick and Ken on a Hot Tin Roof didn't come out. And it's like, honey, that's the point. You know, it's all, mm-hmm. it's all unspoken. And, and even, you know, even today when gay people can come out and Brick could be in love with Skipper, there's so much about the human heart that you know, all right, you may be able to say I'm gay, but can you express all that there is about your sexuality and, you know, and, and your human heart? Can you Mm -hmm. say that out loud? No, you can't. There's so much that is taboo that people feel. And he was the absolute like supreme poet of that. Yeah. And he takes so seriously the, 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 People can't face themselves in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So the implication seems very strong that Brick can't face up to how we felt about Skipper. Skipper could face up to it and he couldn't. And mm-hmm. certainly there's that scene devoted to um, Shannon's, you know, redemptive spirituality in in Night of the Iguana, which is in the film where, you know, Maxine is getting in the face of one of the uh, one of the religious biddies on the bus who's been being very vicious and and she's basically saying your problem is you're a, you're a lesbian and you're in love with your charge. Who's the young, you know, the young Nimfet played by Sue, 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 Sue Lyons. Yeah. And yeah. And he stops her. Shannon stops her and says, she can't. And, and she's like, why did you stop me? She's being horrible. She's trying to destroy you. And he says, she can't bear it. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll wreck her mentally. She can't, she, she'll, she will be dest- literally destroyed. She won't be able to accept who she is. So it would just be a cruelty Yeah, to force it on her. She can't go on living with it. Yeah. Um, so that he seems to take that very seriously, that there's a kind of mental fragility that people have and they have an idea of themselves that they can they can just about bear to live with. <laughs> yes. And often they can't go any further than that. It's and true. it's nice to have someone take that that complexity seriously. Yeah. It, above all else, you, you can you can never reduce Tennessee Williams uh, in you. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly. And, uh, you know, he is always on the side of the outsider. The freak. Yes. You know, uh, the vagabond, the gypsy, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that's not I know that's not politically correct, but I'm saying it because, you know, the gypsy is like a character in several of his plays. And um, I think that. Yeah, there's a big speech to that effect, isn't there, in Casino Royale? There is Camino Royale. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's always on the side of the outsider. So if you Mm -hmm. take that into consideration and, you know, Mm -hmm. he's relentless. I mean, he hates American capitalism and in many ways he hated being conventionally successful. He wrestled with it his entire life. He Mm -hmm. thought it killed him as a person. 
Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't like the pressure of fame. Of course he craved it, you know, and of course he admitted to craving it. I mean, this is him. Like he's, he's honest <laughs> and it's all about the conflicts, the conflicting desires that being a person in our contemporary society it creates and he will never reconcile it. So he, oh my God, he, he relentlessly critiques the American South, um, but he won't demonize someone like Blanche Dubois. And, it, you know, so to me, this is his genius. It's it's holding all of those things in a way that uh, he's mostly pessimistic, but mm -hmm. there's poetry in his poetry. There's hope Be because for Tennessee Williams, at the end of the day, the only thing that saves him in his worldview is art. And, you know, maybe you can get on board with that. Maybe you can't for me. Um, I, that's my worldview. So I, you know, I think the, the most meaningful thing you can do is like try to convey your experience and leave it behind for someone else mm -hmm. to find and feel less alone. Um, is, you know, can you slot that into a political track that we can like name at this moment? Maybe not precisely. Um, but it's certainly not a champion of capitalism or individualism in the way that right. we're used to thinking about it in, you know, American ideology. Right. Thank God. Yes. It's, it's super rich. If you, if you haven't delved in <laughs> to his great, especially his great works, it's so, it's so worth. And especially if you feel a little bit, and I don't know why you wouldn't, emotionally starved. Yeah. I don't know how Americans survive. It's like we're in the thinnest air there is. It really, really <laughs> is. And then you watch Tennessee Williams and there's just this this explosion of excess and it's such a relief. Yeah. You feel like you're being nurtured just by that alone. <laughs> so that's it. And, you know, I just attribute to his amazing strength. I don't know how he survived to, to be, what, 71 when he died. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. To even read about his life to, is to just read about, it is to be so exhausted. You're like, how did you? While he's eating fistfuls of, <laughs> second of all. pills of second <laughs> all, and washing it down with copious amounts of alcohol. And how? How? And just the, his emotional life is so intense. I don't know how he, I don't know how he stayed standing. Yeah. So that's very impressive. And he seems to admire the ability to continue functioning at all yes. in a world that's as hard as this one is. So that I love too. Endurance. He has endurance. the utmost respect for <laughs> endurance. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Well, I think we better say I, we could go on and on. We could talk for two more hours. Easy. Easy. Yeah. But we better stop because we're, we're getting close to 90 minutes and that's our outer limit. Yep. So that is it for today. And thanks so much, our dear listeners. And of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in mint juleps. <laughs> Thank <laughs> y'all. Thank y'all. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with um, Patreon for all the Film Suck, Suck content instead of just the half that you can get for free. You can find us on Film Suck, Instagram, or Twitter to keep up with all the news about the podcast. Um, next week, just a heads up, I'm going to be writing a subscriber-only essay, um, which I'm calling In Honor of Spring, which is, you know, <laughs> today's the first day of spring when we're recording this. Why David Lynch Springs Eternal. So you yes. try to cope with that. <laughs> that will be available to read on Tuesday, March 30th. And then our next podcast episode, um, Dolores and I are going to tackle the topic that we like to call Dueling Divas. <laughs> um, we're going to be dealing with um, two different films. One is um, Tina. Um, it's a uh, uh, documentary on the life of Tina Turner. It's on HBO Max starting March 28th. And the other is already playing on Hulu. It's the United States versus Billie Holiday with Andra Day. 
um, playing Billie Holiday. She's nominated for awards all over the place. She won um, Golden Globe um, for Best Actress in a Drama. So we're going to combine those two yes. um, um, and talk about both at the same time. Um, and join us for that. That'll be available on Tuesday. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Tuesday, April 6th. That's right. Yep. Um, so thanks again for joining us. Always a delight. Yes, thank you all. Bye. Bye.